BBR Mohan Reddy, it is such a pleasure to have you with us on Network Capital. Uh, we've long admired your career and your breadth of work, and now you've come out with a new book, um, Engineered in India. Tell us a bit about uh, the origins of this book and how you started thinking about it. Well, Utkarsh, if you look back uh, uh, and look at my career, which uh, spans uh, almost uh, 40 plus years now, I was uh, to start with uh, a professional working in the corporate world, but I would always describe myself to be an entrepreneur. Then I had a uh, semi-entrepreneurship uh, stint of 10 years uh, running a computer hardware system integration company, and then became an entrepreneur for 30 years. So about around 25 years, when I was also turning uh, 60 plus, I decided that it was time for me to think about uh, a succession plan. And I found a successor. When I found the successor, the next question that came to my mind was, you don't retire from uh, life. You retire only from a role. I was giving up this role of uh, being the CEO of the company. And as a result, uh, I said, what's your passion in life at this juncture? And the passion was more uh, on education, innovation, entrepreneurship. And I was working on in that area for the last uh, six to uh, eight years. Uh, we can talk more about it as we move along. But uh, at, uh, during that period, almost the uh, last five, six years back, five, five six years uh, into the, uh, this new passion of my life, I said, how do I communicate with more people? And we thought the right way of doing it was to write the book with all the experiences that I had with me. And that's how this book got initiated. And uh, what about the title? Why did you call it Engineered in India? So in some ways, uh, Utkarsh, if you look at it, um, uh, many of us who live in this part of the world are, are engineered in India. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but the big passion in life is uh, I am uh, by training a mechanical engineer and um, I um, spent um, uh, all my life, all my professional life uh, in uh, uh, doing more amount of engineering, of course, using computers. And um, in the last uh, 30 years, when we started off my company, which is now uh, branded as Signed, uh, we provided uh, engineering as a service to global customers and built this brand called Engineered in India. So therefore, I thought I'll call my book too as Engineered in India. And what did uh, you engineer from India was truly a company that uh, was among the first who started building solutions off of India and for the world. What were the early days like? What was the starting hypothesis of the company? The starting hypothesis uh, way back in 1991 um, was that uh, we provide engineering as a service to the global companies. We saw um, already some amount of success going on with IT services. And the key advantage uh, with um, services from India, which requires, uh, which uh, involves human capital, is primarily the cost advantage, the cost arbitrage right. that it provides. So we thought engineering would also provide the same arbitrage. So let's look at engineering as an outsourcing service 
for the global companies. We did not realize um, uh, at that point of time that we were a little too early uh, in terms of uh, foraying into this marketplace because uh, still India did not have the right uh, recognition. Uh, in the lighter vein, I would say even the early 90s, people used to think that, you know, there were elephants roaming around the streets of India, there were snake charmers all around. Uh, and so therefore, understandably, there's one other major you know, issue involved is that when it comes to engineering, there's also intellectual property that's involved for an organization. So therefore, you're trying to trust somebody thousands of miles away with your intellectual property, giving some of the technical information to them. So therefore, it was fairly rough for us in the initial years. But we were very fortunate, like any other uh, uh, entrepreneur. I was nimble-footed. I looked for adjacencies. We found an adjacency which was a low-hanging fruit. And that was uh, to do with digitization. It was in some ways, uh, uh, it was uh, to do with uh, computer-aided uh, uh, digitization, but it was uh, a low-end low -end, uh, service, but had good margin service it was. And it was a total addressable market was very large. Right. We found that particular marketplace, we uh, built scale uh, with, uh, digitization as services from the company, but we got a major breakthrough in 2000 for engineering services and we scaled that business. Digitization still is a part of the company, but it's a very small part of the company. It actually sits in each of the verticals that we have, industry verticals that we have. It's fantastic, especially the timing that you mentioned around 1991. So you had seen the pre-liberalization India and of course, you're uh, um, one of the main architects of shaping the IT revolution post-91. I want to tell you that um, a few weeks back, we hosted uh, Dr. Shashi Tharoor. One of his books is Elephant, Cell Phone, and the Tiger. And he does paint a picture of India uh, pre- and post-liberalization. I'll be very interested if you could paint your picture and also the picture of your company, how it evolved uh, pre- and post-liberalization. Thank you, Utkarsh. I will give you an example. I did write uh, about this in my book, the pre-liberalization India. And uh, you typically had to wait for uh, seeing uh, the uh, director or uh, the uh, undersecretary in government of India to get uh, most of your paperwork done, which is called the licenses that were being provided by them. And uh, while you waited outside, there used to be two chairs uh, and one chair used to be with only three legs. So it probably got its balance by pushing itself against the wall. So in the four-leg chair, the pune used to sit down. And in the three-leg chair, uh, the uh, visitor used to sit down. And then you had this other very uh, challenging uh, situation because the pune, uh, given uh, uh, there's nothing uh, bad about it, but given what his um, earning profile was, he used to smoke this uh, thing called the BD, which is a tendu leaf uh, uh, wrapped up. It's nauseating. And you have to inhale that smoke and wait for the big Babuji to call you. Uh, that used to be the pre-liberalization pre time. I think post-liberalization, there's so much amount of change that has come by. There are instances that we have, for instance, um, the scheme called STPI, Software Technology Parks of India, which is a post-liberalization scheme that came in. 
in order to promote more amount of exports. There's an unwritten rule between the director of STPI and the local association president that any paper that goes to him or her uh, gets returned within 24 hours. Even if they're traveling, they give what is called as verbal orders to their mm -hmm. uh, staff and they come and sign up the document. That's the amount of transformation that you've seen uh, from waiting uh, for hours uh, to no end uh, to a situation where you literally had instantaneous uh, results coming in. I think the long way to go, uh, there's still uh, uh, post-liberalization, we're about 25, 27 years into it. We think a lot more uh, can still happen, but the good news is it's progressing in the right direction. Got it. And your company from 1991, say 10 years after that, how did you survive? How did you find the product market fit? As I said earlier, Utkarsh, that uh, we found digitization as services, which was low-hanging fruit. And uh, these were services which uh, were uh, in great demand. Uh, because what was happening was, if you look at uh, around early part of 90s, the Western world were all committed to uh, using computers for their design. That's CAD CAM, computer design, computer manufacturing, computer engineering. CAD-CAM CAE as it's called. But then they also had a large backlog of all their documentation, which is all paper-based. And that had to become digital too. So we now think about a digital revolution uh, uh, sweeping all around the world. But you look at uh, even 1990s, the utility companies in those er era, which is basically large telephone companies, large power companies, water, sewer, wastewater, all these companies which had network of information with them, which are all in the form of drawings, which are all paper drawings, they all had to come into the computer systems. <clears throat> just not come into the computer system, they had to be intelligent too. Because if you just scan the document and you put it into computer, it's not intelligent. You can't go ahead and edit the document when you scan it, right? It's all one image. So therefore, if you scan, the scanning technologies were available, but then if you scan the drawing and put it into the computer system, you would not get it intelligent because you have to know what's the length of the cable, where is the conduit, where is the pillar, where's the curve, uh, where's the, uh, how, how far is the conduit from the curve of the road and so on and so forth. So all these uh, definitely required a sizable amount of human intervention. Technologies have changed at this point of time. We'll come to that a little while later. So as a result of that, there was enormous amount of human intervention required in making these drawings intelligent. And that's where we saw a labor arbitrage and a cost arbitrage that was there. And we decided to, and that was basically using computers. It was CAD software that was used, computer design software. It was the same for education right. too. So therefore, the first nine years, our life was good because, you know, we found a marketplace. But it's also tough because it requires enormous amount of human skills. So these human skills for digitization, if you look at it, were not available in India. So A, it meant a sizable amount of training. B, then you, even in, in spite of training, you need to have quality consistency. Over and over again, you know, you're not looking at five people, 10 people. Our digitization business itself at one point of time had 3,000 people. So you had to, irrespective of who did the digitization of a drawing, it had to be the same quality at the end of it. 
which to the customer meant we used to have SLAs as they call service level agreements, which are they can't be uh, more than two percent errors in the drawing. So therefore, that was a very challenging, daunting task. I write about it and the amount of effort that I put in in terms of bringing processes in place. What helped us is in terms of laying out the processes. And once we laid out the processes and made sure that people were trained, we were scaling like crazy. We, actually, the customers were very perplexed and surprised. Our SLA said 98% accuracy, whereas our deliverables were more at about 99.5, 99.8. Hardly there was one mistake and 100 elements that you can see. So the messaging I have for my uh, young entrepreneurial friends is that every uh, entrepreneurial journey has a lot of challenges, like what I faced. Uh, in this particular instance, I'll just give this as an example. But you could also search for a solution. And you have to definitely have that curious mind to find a solution which is very unique and which is very robust, which can allow you to scale. I can only imagine that around uh, early 90s, finding tech talent to be able to do this kind of work uh, would not have been easy. How were you finding this human capital? And what was this training infrastructure that you put in place? So interesting question, Utkarsh. Uh, um, primarily what we thought was uh, the fresh graduate engineers could be a good talent pool uh, to get uh, trained in the digitization techniques. Uh, they have to have uh, a understanding of what, um, because these were not drawings, these were maps. So that you have to have a good understanding of mapping technologies. Because uh, one of the very basic things that we learned, I also refer to it in my book somewhere, is that uh, a world is not flat, <laughs> world <laughs> is round. So therefore, if you take large maps, uh, there's something called projection system, because in, on paper, it's all flat. So when it comes back on your computer screen, it's flat, it's not round. So therefore, the ability to say that you know when it becomes round, the distance is far different from what's being seen in the screen. That is the projection system that goes on. So we had to train them, A, on the domain, that's now digitization. The second one is they had to get trained in the software because uh, yeah. at that point of time, there were not uh, uh, many software houses which had training. So our, they, they had to have two things. One is uh, the ability to functionally train them. The second one is in terms of getting them training on the software itself. But more importantly, I think uh, the key thing I always learned, and I keep saying this, I always choose people who had the ability to learn because we live in a world there's a constant change so therefore you have to just not say that i'll train these people but i also select people who have ability to learn constantly are the people who will build my organization that is fantastic and i i think that never changes the learnability is as important in the early 90s as it is today Technology has changed, but uh, that particular skill is even more relevant uh, as we speak now. So now you're in 2000s, you have found product market fit. Uh, how do you decide to scale your services? How do you decide what to do and what not to do as a software company? Well, um, we, we, we were very uh, fortunate uh, to uh, find a customer who still continues to be a customer uh, for the last uh, 20 plus years. Uh, I can name them. It was Pratt & Whitney. 
it was an accidentally that we uh, ran into each other, but um, it um, turned out to be a very long-lasting, large relationship. Uh, Could you tell us about the accident? We love serendipity on that. <laughs> <laughs> accident, very interesting. I didn't mention about it in my book too. Uh, is that uh, I get a call uh, from uh, an old uh, friend of mine uh, who was working for Pratt & Whitney, uh, who was doing some machining work for them, very small outfit in Hyderabad. And he said, you know, look, these guys from Pratt & Whitney are coming into Hyderabad and they're hosting a dinner tonight. I got an invite, come with me, let's go for dinner together. So I told uh, my friend saying that, look, one of the uh, cardinal principles of my life is just don't do gate trashing, don't go uninvited. <laughs> and, uh, and he was quite nice to say, no, 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 don't worry about that part. Uh, those days we did not even have email. Uh, it used to be faxes. He said, give me a fax number. And I'll make sure the country manager of Pratt & Whitney will send you a fax inviting you for dinner tonight. So um, it was uh, late in the evening. I had an early morning flight to catch, um, to go to Mumbai for an ASCOM uh, annual flagship event called uh, the NILF those days. And uh, so very reluctantly, I said, let's go and see what it is. Um, it was not very well illuminated place. Uh, and uh, uh, those days also, there were not many flights that used to come from Delhi to Hyderabad. This particular delegation was flying in that evening from there. And they said the flight was late. Um, uh, it was half past eight. Uh, when we first saw it, uh, the first few people walking in from the team, they said the team was as big as 15 people strong. One thing that I learned very early in my sales life is also to say that when you see a large group of people you need to certainly identify who is the coffee maker and who is the decision maker. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it wasn't uh, uh, an easy task. I found the decision maker. Uh, it was, I think I mentioned his name called, a uh, gentleman called Ed Crow. Uh, he was a senior vice president of engineering of Pratt & Whitney. Uh, he was, uh, 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 subsequently I came to realize that he was a godsend gift to mankind in terms of building aircraft engines. That is the type of knowledge uh, uh, Ed Crow had. And uh, Ed Crow and I started a conversation about Indian wines. Uh, Indian wines were not so popular those days. There used to be a, uh, a local uh, Hyderabadi wine called the Golconda Red Ruby. And uh, he said, what are you drinking? I said, the only thing that I drink is wine. So he said, How, what do you think of Indian wines? I said, a lot of my friends keep uh, uh, making jokes about me, saying that I uh, drink chemical. <laughs> that, that's what the wine was like. So he said, no, no, I'm going to try it. But I said, you know, you should have that special taste to uh, drink Indian wine. He liked it. And the conversation went on for an hour, all about India. He was very curious about learning about India, what type of technology skills we had in India and what type of things we could do uh, for a company like Pratt & At the end of the conversation, he said, uh, Mohan, I'd like to come and see you tomorrow. So uh, that accidentally it was. And then uh, he said, I'll give you an hour. I'll come to your facility. I did not have, this is early 2000 we are talking about, any um, major engineering uh, uh, contracts. I had only one small contract with me from Ford Motor Company. Mm -hmm. uh, and they came in a team of 15 people. I, I, in a few months before that, I inaugurated a fairly large facility of mine. It was brand new, but it was, most of it was empty. 
he came in and then we demonstrated uh, to him what we did for this digitization as such Mm -hmm. And what I think subsequently I had several conversations with, he turned out to be from being a professional um, uh, associate to a good friend. Uh, that's the translation we have seen uh, in him. What made him decide that day that I was the right partner for him? And he said, Mohan, I believe in terms of trusted relationships. And I saw the trust in you. So whatever you told us previous night, you demonstrated on the shop floor. We said, you know, we measured to manage, we had quality systems, we display the pro productivity of people, all that were there. He said that was the start point for the relationship. So therefore, that's the accidental uh, meeting that I had with uh, Ed Tro and his team of 15 people from uh, Pratt and Whitney. Uh, at the end of that meeting that they had next morning, they said, uh, when are you coming to Hartford? That they're, they're headquartered out of uh, Hartford in Connecticut uh, in US. Um, and I said, tell me the uh, date, I'll come by. If you want, I'll come to become a part of your baggage. <laughs> I can come with you. <laughs> so they gave me time, and two weeks from there, thereafter it was history. Uh, slowly but steadily, we climbed up the ladder with them. Um, the best of times, we had about 1,000 plus people on a single engagement. This is very high-end uh, design work for aircraft engines. So... Accidental meetings can also be very turning points in the uh, life of the company. And this was one. In my uh, significantly smaller and uh, much less adventurous life, um, I, I, I cannot echo that. Almost everything meaningful in my life is a happy accident. It's just that you got to keep looking for happy accidents. Exactly. And accidents also come to you with gush for a prepared mind is what I keep saying. Uh, right. see, uh, I'm sure you you say accident, but you constantly look for opportunities. And that's yeah. when they smile at you. And that's what happened in our case too. We never gave up that engineering services is very difficult one. We persisted. Actually, uh, in 1997, I did an IPO for the company. 1991 is when I incorporated the company. In 1997, a little early in the life, but I did an IPO. And in the IPO, I made a commitment that we, with uh, rejuvenation, this engineering services market. We needed some more money. That's why we uh, went to the IPO, we wanted to buy large CAD CAM systems and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, I think we lived up to that um, promise that we made to our investors too. Right. So IPO is done. You've, your, your clients are growing. Clients are staying with you as well. And then uh, there are many macro challenges that start happening. You know, every 10 years, there is something. And you, I mean, anyone who's from the IT services or technology space knows what happened in the late 90s, early 2000s. How did you uh, sort of navigate your company through that series of crises around that time? So, good question, Utkarsh. Thank you. Uh, the first one that I would like to highlight is that uh, I'm a first-generation entrepreneur. I don't have deep, deep pockets. Uh, come from a middle-class background. My father was a police officer. Uh, to them, next to God was education. So that's what he gave us. So therefore, what did we do? And then, you know, our ambitions were large. We wanted to uh, become a global uh, uh, software services company. With that ambition, we said, you know, look, we can't go and spend our uh, money in uh, creating offices all around the world. So the first model that we did was a partnership model. 
so therefore we had partners in geographies who did the sales and marketing for us and also they had the client relationships i did the back end for them that's what it was so by late 90s we realized this is not a model that will work in terms of scaling because you know objectives could be far different i was ambitious my partners are, were not equally ambitious they were uh, trying to think about this as a lifestyle business in one particular case in europe that's what we found so therefore what we did the, the stumbling block was the growth will not come in this particular model we had to take the aggressive position so we wanted to have a geographic expansion and what we did was at the size of the company that we were we decided to go on the acquisition path so we went, went and bought a company in uh, uh, london we bought a company in germany stuttgart to be more precise and thereafter we bought a company in uh, uh, washington dc it's just across the uh, uh, straight line into virginia and um, uh, no it was virginia and as a result of that you had geographical expansion that we did so this was the first stumbling block partnership does not work you should be in a position to do that or we started realizing that look if you want to get into very serious engineering as a service the other big block is a domain expertise domain becomes very important you can't do training with domain it's sheer experience hmm. so the curious mind said where do you find this domain experts in india and especially this was in a very sophisticated uh, uh, technology like uh, aircraft uh, engine or aircraft uh, uh, fuselage design work and we said you know look there are these public sector large corporations the hals the gtres and uh, uh, a few more so we went ahead and said you know look uh, we'll provide a better career for them and uh, people bought our story it's not very easy so that was a stumbling block again or if you look at even the uh, uh, late 2000 uh, 2000s 2008 i believe that's when the financial meltdown happened we were um, by the time we said it's not just aerospace uh, we had rail equipment business with us uh, we had nuclear power plants uh, the fourth expansion we said you know electronics is going to be the future and we saw the semicon way back in 2008 so we bought a semiconductor design company BLSI design company out of uh, San Francisco. The day we were, uh, I signed the documentation, but still did not go to the uh, seller. Uh, we realized that there was this major crisis uh, in the world. The meltdown was on. Uh, should we go back? And my point was no. I think we we'll, we can still make good of what uh, the challenges we have with us. So to us, if you look at to me personally, entrepreneurial life is all about facing challenges day in and day out. Uh, sure, uh, I use this word called uh, roller coaster ride every morning. And <laughs> what is this roller coaster ride? Is to me uh, there's certain amount of fear, uh, but there's also excitement every morning, saying that there's going to be a new day that's there. And you also know that there is a certain amount of safety nets that you have built because of your capability, if you're planning and so on and so forth. and what keeps you going is uh, at the end of the day you certainly see pleasure and also a peace of mind uh, so therefore a combination of these uh, the uh, uncertainty in terms of future the excitement that goes on the risks that are there and so on and so forth makes your life complete so therefore from time to time every time that uh, we we continuously evaluate what the risks are what challenges that we have 
and find a mitigation strategy associated with it. So that's how we have uh, constantly fought uh, the battles. Yeah, and 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 won them uh, multiple times. I love this quote about entrepreneurship. I think it comes from Brian Armstrong. It said, uh, "Entrepreneurship is going from setback to setback with enthusiasm." Sure. Setback <laughs> to setback enthusiasm. Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, there are many important milestones um you know in in a company's lifestyle you got to that ipo mark fairly quickly and then you also eventually became like a billion dollar company i mean that is the platinum standard for uh for uh, for most companies but you were a profitable uh billion dollar company with very strong unit economics processes in place um when you contrast that to other kinds of billion dollar companies that have become more popular today. What is the fundamental difference between your approach and perhaps the approach that you read about these days? Well, I think uh, both um, evolved in different uh, time periods. So that one has to definitely keep in mind. Uh, I belong to generation of companies which profitability became very important. Uh, it's not how much of market share that you get. But whereas in evolving uh, and emerging technologies, it is not uh, existing markets that are there, but you start more amount of market development. You start creating the market. So therefore, you need to spend a lot more money compared to what you do in a market which is already, the total addressable market is defined. So the result is these are two different types of uh, businesses in my perspective. The current uh, uh, breed of uh, young startups, uh, which actually do not care about how much money you're losing, but you're only uh, trying to say how your valuations are going up. And valuations would go up basically based on how, much, how, how many customers you have and so on and so forth. So therefore, we can't compare both of them. But I still tell my startups at this point of time, I uh, do have... Uh, my basket is about 20 to 25 startups that I have with me. I spend a considerable amount of my time these days on the startups. I created T-Hub, which is the largest incubation center in the country. In Hyderabad, yeah. Hyderabad. Uh, and uh, the point I uh, tell them is, to me, even in the current scenario, you should definitely clearly lay a path when you'll be profitable. You tell me you won't be profitable for three years, five years is perfectly fine. But at the end of period, the three or five years, you should become profitable. You should at least become break-even, if not profitable. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, it's a question of the hype. Uh, I'm sure things are changing at this point of time. But uh, the reality of life is business is all about uh, making sure that you have a sustainability. And sustainability is not by valuation. Sustainability is because of how much money you make out of your business. That's my right. belief. So it's an important reminder for all of us, uh, you know, to keep the fundamentals in mind, uh, while also, you know, leverage the new trends, look at, uh, you know, the way technology is evolving. Uh, I want to get your opinion as a business leader, as an academic, as an investor, institution builder, um, about trying to understand India's growth story with what you're trying to build, understand macro trends, because 
when I read the book and when I speak to you, it very clearly occurs to me that you understand India and you understand your competitive strength and you understand, you know, what's your main thing and what's something that the company also does. So any thoughts about how did you stick to focus for decades in order to, you know, get to the level you are? And were there times when you were not sure what your focus should be when new kinds of companies were coming up in the similar domain? Um, and what your thoughts on this entire picture would be pretty helpful. So uh, I thought there were a couple of questions that you put together. One is about India is one you said, how is the opportunity fanning out? And how did I stick to the domains that I choose to uh, work in? Uh, I think we'll answer the second question first and I'll go back to the first question thereafter. The first one is that to me, focus brings uh, success. Uh, as much as I think we talked earlier, uh, 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 that you also said the same thing, that um, prepared minds, um, you know, luck would always come and favor them. Hmm. So therefore, we said we will not definitely move away from focus. Um, I could, if you probably have a setback, you can always think in terms of what are alternatives that I have. No, we said, no, let's understand why do we have this setback? And we need to go back to fix it. Uh, why is the quality so poor? Why are we not getting consistency in terms of quality? We went back to uh, the um, drawing boards and understood saying that, no, unless you have uh, consistency uh, in terms of um, capability of individuals, you never get quality consistently coming out. So similar is the case that you said domain expertise. And they, I talk about one more uh, example of trying to understand the focus. We moved into rail uh, engineering. Rail right. is a big practice for us. Uh, and we used to work for uh, a British company. And we found uh, 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 one of our uh, uh, senior uh, marketing guys was there at the facility and found very, very old people working in that office. There's nothing wrong about it. I'm an old man too. But uh, we try to understand why only the old people are working. Why not the youngsters? Because they said, you know, there was something called IRC licensing that was required. And that meant, you know, there's a fairly large amount of time that was needed to get those licenses. We found ways by which that licenses can be obtained. So it's a combination of number of things. So therefore, what was it? Focus. Rail is a practice that we'll be in. Aerospace, people said, is a tough one. But we made sure that we address the uh, aerospace business. So focus is what brought us the success at this point of time, irrespective of the challenges that we faced. You come back to India, India is a different ballgame um, now compared to what it was in the past. I think the recent past, especially if you see the government of India's uh, number of initiatives in terms of Atmanirbhar Bharat, makes India the promising land. Why didn't it happen to, so far? I think R&D investments were very few in India. If at all, right. if you look at uh, industries which did a uh, reasonable amount of R&D, is one is pharmaceuticals. They spend a lot of money. I think the best of pharmaceutical companies are there in India. I think to a certain extent, we also did some work in automobiles, auto, especially parts. Our third one is uh, biotechnology. Other than that, I think you know we depended enormously on uh, imports, import of products. Uh, especially if you look at aerospace and defense, it is all to do with imports and imports. But I think we are seeing the change occurring at this point of time. Uh, people are uh, given some of the geopolitics that are there. They're also looking inward. 
um, I think globalization will probably morph itself into some amount of uh, uh, self-reliance. In addition to being global, you have to have the self-reliant too. So the Indian opportunities will also be plenty as we move forward. The future looks different from what the past was. Past Indian um, uh, India for engineering design work was very, very limited. Hmm. Whereas now it possibilities arise, but I think you know you also need to be very careful in terms of trying to see how best you can address this market. So therefore, you know, focus is one thing which brought us success over a period of time. And the second one that we had uh, is that um, India market will evolve uh, much more as a company, uh, as a government, the country embarks on this Atmanirbhar Bharat, and also as the Amrit Kal comes in. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Amen to that. Uh, Mohan, can you tell me about uh, some of the most promising employees or young professionals that have come your way in the past decades? Um, more than their names, I'm interested in their attitudes. One, early on, you mentioned the ability to learn new things. But uh, in every company's journey, there are employees that play you know, leadership roles or really rise up to the occasion. We want to understand what makes such employees. See, you've got to create the environment of the ecosystem to make them feel much more comfortable. Um, I keep talking, uh, kept talking about it, and continue to talk about this uh, uh, ownership mindset that has to come into people if uh, organizations has to be sustainable for long periods of time. And uh, I keep, uh, I think I wrote uh, in my book itself, the first example that I had, I actually started off as a management trainee uh, way back in uh, 1974. Uh, I'm fairly sure she would not have been born at that point of time. Uh, that's where I started my professional career. And um, I used to run a diesel engine assembly shop for them. And what was, um, uh, there used to be several challenges. If you read the book, you'll understand the story. But key thing is, I said, look, irrespective of whether I do the job or not, I'll get my salary all right. But more importantly, the satisfaction will never come saying that, you know, I established something of my own. So therefore, it, though I used to work for uh, Lala Charitramji, uh, who was the chairman of the board of PCM those days, uh, used to, uh, for good reasons, I used to be in touch with him too. And uh, he gave us enough of liberty and we decided that is like our shop. It is, I, I own the shop. I made a commitment to Lalaji that I'll produce 25 diesel engines per ship, 75 in a day, 450 in a week. I said, that's a commitment I made. That particular mindset has to come into every employee too. Saying that he's not being there as a paid salary employee. One way we have done that, I think reasonably well, is to make sure that we also shared the wealth uh, with the wealth creators. So we were one of the first few companies we had um, a, what is called an associate stock option plan. Uh, and um, certainly I think employment is just beyond just work. Making sure that there are many other facets that will come by is what makes, I think, uh, uh, a big difference in terms of employee involvement, in terms of building sustainable companies. So what we try to do over a period of time, the, the create an ecosystem where people think that they uh, own the place, they're responsible, uh, they also make them ambitious and govern them in making sure that you don't have any political environment. There is only one methodology by which people get recognized. 
And that one particular thing is performance and performance and performance. I keep telling people, don't come and tell me any reason, say, why well, I did A, B, C, D. Tell me your performance. This is last year. This is this year. You can come and thump on my table. I don't need to do that. And I will reward you thereafter. So therefore, you have to create that culture which says that, you know, ownership mindset, uh, performance is the ethic in this organization. The, there's no politics that go around. That's when companies sustain. Understood. Um, somebody once told me that uh, success in life comes down to the number of difficult conversations one is willing to have. You know, you have such a calm demeanor and you look like, you know, Touchwood, a very happy person. Thank you. That's always the case. How, how and when have you had difficult conversations that, uh, that just could be avoided? In entrepreneurial life, uh, you know, you can't say time is all the time on your side. You have difficult conversations. Um, difficult conversations and customers constantly telling you that uh, you can improve your uh, quality of your products. You can bring in more amount of innovation into uh, the relationship. Or you have to bring down your prices. And uh, one of the things which we found very interesting was also that uh, customers would uh, define a project for you and you start executing it. That's when they start saying, no, I needed something more, which in the software terminology, it's called the scope creep. But customer would never admit that scope creep. He would say, look, you know, I am, uh, uh, I meant this already in what I told you or what I wrote to you. So these are difficult conversations. And so one of the principles I used to teach my salespeople is that break the bad news first. Tell the guy that this is this involves ABCD further. And this is what will probably cost him. Don't go back to him and then say, because of this, I'm increasing your price. There's no denying that I think scope creep gives us 2% to 2.5% of our revenues on a year-to-year -year basis. So there are difficult conversations with the customers. There are difficult conversations with your employees. Uh, if, having said all that, I think uh, the employees uh, think they have to be paid the best. But you need to make sure that the company is also viable. You can't be the best playing employee in the world. You probably are good enough if you're in the top quartile is what I keep benchmarking myself. You also have conversations, difficult conversations with your investors. Uh, they are constantly looking for uh, better returns than what you do. But you have to balance them off, trying to say that, look, I'm not here just to uh, uh, service one particular uh, uh, stakeholder who made me successful, but I have to be equitable to all the stakeholders. That's when you start to become successful. People can hear the other views and make sure that the customer would continue to pay you better and better. Uh, and so long as, you know, there's automation coming in, we're giving productivity gains. There are SLAs which say that, you know, you get 10% gain because of productivity, but because of inflation, you get this 5% to 7% increase every three years. So it has to be a combination of both of them. So I think the key to all this would lie in one thing called communication. Hmm. That's another key thing that we affect. Uh, what are we doing right now? Communicate, communicate, and communicate. And so long as you can keep those channels open, and not that you just all the time speak, but you also listen to people. Uh, I think that is what makes the company different. That's what will make companies sustainable. At this stage of your career, you're heavily involved in institution building, you know, be it NASCOM, be it, uh, you know, the Institutes of Technology, 
um, what's the broader purpose? How are you seeing this theory of change pan out? What I'm really trying to get at is uh, if you could make a few changes as an influential leader um, in the education space, what would that be? And again, as, uh, as a leader of uh, an institutional body or industry body, what are some changes that you're working towards? Well, I think, um, again, a good question, Kush. I've worked on several things so far. Uh, one, I think um, I feel very proud in that perceptible change that brought to this nation itself. Uh, is um, on 2000, in 2018, uh, the government of India Ministry of Education uh, created a committee under my chairmanship, uh, primarily asking us to develop the perspective plan for technical education for this nation. And I, I won't get into dwell into the report and so on and so forth. One highlight I'll just bring it up is that till such time, there was no focus on digital education. The emerging technologies were not a part of curriculum in any of these engineering colleges, which came under the Ministry of Education. They might have been IITs were one aspect of life, but it's much beyond IITs. AICT controlled um, the several thousand engineering colleges. And that's when we called out nine different technologies which are emerging, nine technologies in which they have to start. And today, if you see that I think every engineering college, these are thousands now, do have ability to skill people in these areas. So you brought about a perceptible change. Or we, the, the second thing that I also worked very hard and I continue to work on it, uh, we did an event even last week, uh, was that we have to bridge the gap between academia and the industry. Uh, what uh, the uh, industry requires, academy is not producing. And industry is not probably are explicitly stating what their requirements are. So therefore the connect has to improve. And the big event that we did last uh, week was bringing all the 23 IITs together under one roof and doing what is called as an IIT R&D fair. It was uh, branded as inventive. And I think that uh, certainly brought an enormous amount of um, traction to the industry to say, oh my God, we didn't realize that the IITs did so much of R&D work. So the game plan at this point of time, or a third one that I'll also talk about as a part of the second one itself, is that I was a part of the committee which also um, uh, institutionalized something called professors of practice. Hmm. To be a teacher, you had to have a PhD as a qualification. Experience did not count. But in the recent past, we put this um, uh, 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 framework in place that people with experience also can be appointed as faculty members. So these are the changes which will have a fairly long-term implications. I should give a lot of credit to the government and. Uh, Dr. Kasturi Rangan, uh, who brought in a new education policy in 2020. It's called NEP 2020. Uh, I'm working very closely with, um, uh, again, the government in terms of trying to see how best it can be executed. I think one is to write a policy, but the other one is to execute it. So that it is a very forward-looking uh, policy, but I think the key would lie in making sure that we can flawlessly execute it. And some of the elements of that is what uh, is in play currently. Fantastic. And just like towards the close of the interview, I want to ask you about some of the major influences in your life, mentors, friends, partners, um, who have just shaped your outlook towards your life and what might be your message to them and to the younger people like myself listening in um, to this discussion? Sure. Uh, I have uh, several people in my mind, uh, even starting off with uh, Lala Charitramji himself. Uh, 
he was uh, probably in his uh, late 50s, early 60s, and I was uh, in my early 20s as a management trainee with him. But the amount of uh, curious curiosity he used to have in mind, and he was not a technical person, but the way in which you would understand technology. So that motivated me to say, nothing is beyond you if you want to learn. Uh, so, uh, so there could be a number of negative things I talk about, you know, his uh, leadership styles in my book. But those are the ones which you don't learn to say I implement them, but you learn to say I avoid them. Or uh, uh, leadership to me was also uh, leading by example. Uh, I had a boss called Vinod Krishna in Michael Bosch. Uh, 7.45 was um, our time when you get to work. And I never saw Vinod Krishna coming to work at 7.46. It had to be 7.45. So you can't challenge him. On, uh, because I think good leaders are also disciplined people. Uh, they follow a set rails. They can't come at work as they like and as they uh, please themselves. So therefore, uh, what I think is important thereafter is that you come across a number of people in your life. Uh, the qualities you like in them, you certainly like to practice them. You don't need to be them. Uh, mm -hmm. If you, you are them, then you know you lose your identity. Uh, you have to be yourself. Uh, you should be authentic to yourself. But certainly you can borrow the good principles of life and implement them. That's when you become an outstanding leader. Such a memorable lesson to part on. I'll send you this essay I wrote for Harvard Business Review about envy. And I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Uh, because sure. often when we, when we think about mentors and leaders, we try to mimic them. But that's not the point. The point is to adapt what you've learned and contextualize it to your point. So I'll, I'll email it to you. Sure. But uh, I just want to say what a, what a delight it was to, you know, to have this discussion with you, to read your book. And I know this would be the first of many conversations that we'll have with you on Network Capital. Thank you, Utkarsh. I appreciate Network Capital taking this initiative of uh, uh, trying to get me on this podcast. I've heard some of yours. You do an outstanding job. Congratulations that that count. We'll keep in touch with you. And a message to uh, our listeners at this point of time, read this book, Engineered in India. I think there are some very good lessons uh, for uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, the of writing the book is motivating the youngsters to become entrepreneurs, and I'm sure they'll enjoy reading it. 